entrusted in your life to Hope Church and um, is such a privilege to partner with you and to get to be here this morning. And Ricky's down at the South Campus, which he's going to ruin the South Campus for me. They're never going to want to hear me again. Um, And if you're visiting today, uh, please come back. You'll have an opportunity to hear Ricky. Um, So don't base everything this morning on um, on me, all right? Uh, Ricky Garner is a great man. He's a great pastor, and it is um, big shoes to stand up here uh, and preach in his place. So I appreciate already the grace that you have shown me. Uh, he was telling me about the order of service, and I said, man, I, I'm going to mess that up, and uh, sure enough, I did. So anyways, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We are, um, over the last several weeks, we've been talking about the attributes of God. And um, you had Ricky here. He uh, preached on the wisdom of God. Uh, Mark Kirkendall from the White House campus came. He talked on the faithfulness of God. Eric Barton, um, I don't know if you could keep up. He spoke so fast, but he was talking on the holiness of God. Um, You can listen to the podcast. Just slow it down to half speed and it'll sound normal. And then uh, this morning, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the sovereignty of God from Romans chapter 8. And I want to begin this morning in Romans 8.28. And so if you've been in the church for a while or around Christianity or around Christian people, Romans 8.28 is this very familiar verse. In fact, it's this verse that oftentimes we don't even have to say the whole thing. We just say, um, you know, somebody calls you and they're having a difficult time and we say, you know, we're just Romans 8.28. You know, I mean, we don't even have to say the rest of it because what we mean is, listen, God's, God's got this. God's going to work this out for good. And that's what we say. And we have verses like this that we pull out of Scripture. They're, they're these um, verses that are anchors to us in difficult times um, in life and seasons. They're anchor verses for times of joy and times of praise. And they are fantastic verses. And what makes them even better is when we see them in the context where they live. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at this very familiar verse, this very comforting verse, this anchor for so many of us, and I want to look at it in the context of where it lives in Scripture. And when you talk about Romans 8, it is actually, Paul writes this entire chapter to answer a question at the end of Romans chapter 7. And and what happens in Romans chapter 7 is the end of it is he's talking about not our Christian identity, but he's talking about the Christian experience. And and the thing that he says there as he's struggling and he's wrestling and he says, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I don't find myself doing them. And then he cries out in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who, Who will save me? Same word from this body of death. And then he writes Romans chapter 8 to answer the question, who will deliver me? Who will save me? And you know what? He begins in chapter 8, verse 1, and he says this, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And then he ends Romans 8 by saying, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ 
the answer to who will save me? The answer is found in that little phrase, in Christ. And it begins with there's no condemnation and nothing will separate you. And everything in between is guided by and governed by those two bookmarks. So what he does in Romans chapter 8 is he begins to talk about, hey, listen, we walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And then in times in life, we experience this suffering, but suffering is something greater than just the simple circumstances we're going through. Suffering is something that God is forging a likeness of his son into our life. He he says it in uh, verse 18 of chapter 8. I don't have it on the screen, but it says this. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then he'll end this paragraph, this section on suffering, by saying this. In verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In verse 28, when you see that phrase, you see it there at the end of verse 28, it says, according to his purpose. When you see phrases like that in Scripture, what you're saying is the sovereignty of God. And when you talk about the sovereignty of God, you're actually talking about two things. You're talking about both the power of God and the authority of God. You're talking about the one who has infinite, matchless, limitless power and one who has infinite, majestic, glorious authority. Now, you can have power and no authority. It makes you a tyrant. You can have authority and no power. It makes you a loudmouth, Right? But when we talk about God and we talk about his infinite power and his infinite authority, we're talking about his sovereignty. And in his sovereignty, it says that God can and will do what he decrees. And nothing can stand in his way. And so when he says this, he he says all of these things and he's saying um, that that all these things, we know that for um, those who love God, all things work together for good. I'll tell you about this word good. It, It doesn't mean here in this context this external good or this good that happens out there. He's talking about an internal good, or maybe better yet, an eternal good. And I think he defines it for us in verse 29 that this good that he's working is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That the good he's working is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. You know, the word image there 
it's, uh, it's used to describe a couple of things that Paul would be drawing upon in the first century. One is the image that you would see on a coin, you know, where Jesus says, well, we're, you know, let's look at the, at the coin. You know, they, they pull that and say, well, that belongs to Caesar, so give it back to Caesar. And that the image on the coin that would be embossed on the coin, that's what gives it its value. So if we gave you a coin today and said, hey, it's worth a million dollars, but it had my face on it, you wouldn't be able to buy anything with it, no matter what we said it was worth. But if we gave you something with George Washington or better Benjamin Franklin's picture on it, then th- that would mean something. The other um, thing that Paul would be drawing upon when he talks about image is he would be drawing upon the way that you saw your image in the first century was you had to find some still water so that you could look and see your reflection. Anybody ever been to the Alamo? Um, It's one of my favorite places to go. In fact, if I'm anywhere near... San Antonio or the Alamo, I always drag my kids over there because the Alamo and I share this very special day. My birthday is the same day the Alamo fell. Different years, but it's the, it's the same day. So I always like it, and I've always been this buff, you know, history buff on the Alamo. But if you go to the Alamo, and you missed it, everybody misses it, but there's all these things to read. and I mean, Everybody just goes and takes a picture and leaves. But go in and, and read all of the things that are there. And that right at the entrance there is a portrait and then there's an inscription underneath the portrait. And this is what the inscription says. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. And it's placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. Now, you can draw the line. There's no picture or portrait of Jesus that exists, but, but we, as we're being conformed into the image of his son, we become those that bear his likeness. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, there's two aspects of this, um, of God's love for you. One is that you're fully embraced by God as you are. You're unconditionally loved. You're unconditionally chosen by him. That never changes no matter what. And at the same time, here's another truth. You're always in the process of being transformed. But that is what God is doing in your life, is transforming you. You know, these all things that he talks about, um, it brings with it the reality that they include all things like suffering, and hardship, and grief, even the consequences of our own sin, that these are the all things that he's talking about. And there's these two challenges to all things in our life. One is that we believe, we don't believe it, we, we just desperately wish it was true, is that comfort is the most, most fertile ground to cultivate Christ's likeness. We desperately want that to be true. But it's not true. It is not comfort that is the most fertile ground. So, so, you know, we all would say, you know, no, 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 comfort is. I will be a good steward of comfort, God. You bring me comfort, and I promise I will cultivate Christ-likeness. And the truth is we we don't do that. The other thing is that our favorable circumstances, we believe that favorable circumstances 
you know, having a good house or a good job or financial security or obedient children or health in aging. We, we believe that to be more satisfying than being indwelt by and transformed into Christ. We believe that. We don't, but we do. If given a choice at the beginning of a day saying, hey, listen, do you want to choose today comfortable circumstances or do you want to choose Christ-likeness? Most of us would be like, mm, I don't know. Let's try comfort today and see how it goes, right? Because we believe that to be more satisfying. But that is not, that is not what Paul is talking about. You know, when he talks about suffering, Paul, when he talks about it, he never gives us a way out of suffering. He always, though, provides us a hope in the midst of suffering. And that's what he's talking about. There's this old story of a seminary professor named Dr. Caldwell. And Dr. Caldwell was teaching a seminary class of, uh, a class of seminary students, and he was teaching on Romans. And he got to uh, the end of Romans 7, and he tells his class, um, as they get to the end of the class, he says this. He says, okay, tomorrow, to all the seminaries, tomorrow we are going to be talking about Romans chapter 8. And so I want you to go home and I want you to study that chapter and I want you to read Romans 8, 28. And I want you to notice what it says and, and what it doesn't say. And as he dismisses them, he says this one final word before I dismiss you. Whatever happens in all the years to come, remember, Romans eight twenty eight always holds true. So he dismisses his class. Well, what happens is then Dr. Caldwell leaves the class. He goes home to pick up his wife because they were going to go to a dinner that evening in their honor. So he was being given an award. So he goes home after the class. He changes clothes. His wife's all dolled up. They get in the car. They're driving to the banquet, and their car meets a railroad track at the same time a train does. And she is killed instantly. And he is paralyzed permanently. So he's out for four months in recovery and comes back to the seminary. And they host a class. He wanted to bring his class back together because it was not lost on them what he had said just before he left. So they opened the class. All those students in that class, in fact, all the students of the entire seminary came and they showed up and they wheel Dr. Caldwell in. And in a voice not nearly as strong as it was four months earlier, he says this, Romans 8, 28, still holds true. And one day we shall see God's good even in this. It is hope in the midst of suffering that Paul gives us. You know, as we talk about sovereignty, what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about sovereignty in the midst of suffering. And he goes from there directly and from sovereignty in the midst of suffering to all power and all authority in God's sovereignty to sovereignty in our salvation. Look at what he says in 29 and 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's two things I want to say about this. One, if you look at this verse, everyone that he foreknows, he takes all the way to glorification. He does not lose anybody in the process. And the second thing I would say is that when we begin to talk about these words, foreknowledge and predestination, and if you've been around the church, that makes you think of election uh, as he uses it in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And then the calling and all these things. And we get, as a church, we get super uncomfortable when we talk about these words. In fact, I hear people say all the time, well, I don't believe in predestination. And I I usually say, well, you can't not believe in it. What you believe about it, that we can discuss that. But as I'd say that, I would would say that this way. Um, I remember being... Uh, in an English class one time and we were looking at poetry and what we were doing with poetry is we were taking the poem and we were you know breaking it apart and looking at the rhyme and the meter and the words and the imagery and all of those things and you know kind of pulling it all apart to look at the guts and I, I always imagined you know the poet the author of the poem barging into the classroom and yelling at a stop Quit doing that. That's not why I wrote the poem. I wrote the poem so that you would be affected deeply at the place of your soul. And we have to remember, these are not meant to be a puzzle for the mind, as one writer says. They're meant to be a pillow for our heart. So I'll tell you a little bit about what these words mean. When he talks about foreknowledge... He is not talking about looking down the corridor of time and seeing what it is that you'll do with Jesus and then predestining or electing you based on that. That is not what he talks about. The reason is this, and the reason is because the rest of the Bible tells us this about God. We do not have a God that discovers anything. We do not have a God that asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. We have a God who decrees things, not discovers them. We have a God that knows everything from beginning to end because he decreed it to be. And so when we talk about foreknowledge, we are talking about an intimate covenantal knowledge. Like he says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, 5, he says, I knew you before you were even in the womb. That's what he's saying. And then he says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, we talk about this. An old theologian named J.I. Packer calls it this. He calls it an antinomy. And it's because we, we, we hear this, and then it rises in us, this tension. You say, well, wait a minute. When we talk about election and we talk about uh, predestination, we're talking about the sovereignty of God, and then we always feel in us, yeah, but what about the responsibility of man? What about the free will of man? And what J.I. Packer says, is the tension that we feel in that is called an antinomy. And that means there are two truths that are true, presented side by side, even though they seemingly are contradictory. They're both presented as true. Acts 17, God desires that all men everywhere repent. And so what do you do with it? 
Here's what I would suggest we do with it. We do with it the same thing the, the biblical writers do with it that are inspired by the Holy Spirit who seem to write these two truths side by side all the time and they feel no need to resolve the tension. In their finiteness, they don't feel the need to resolve an infinite tension that it turns out is no tension for God at all. They asked Charles Spurgeon, well, what do you do with these two things? How do you reconcile these two things? And he said, I feel no need to reconcile friends. And that's the way we ought to feel. You know, there's a story about this group of theologians, and they got to this issue of predestination and free will, and they, be, they had this just sharp disagreement. I mean, they just began arguing, arguing, arguing. And so finally, they broke up into two camps. You had the predestination group, and you had the free will group. But you had this one guy, and he was sort of left out in the middle, and he didn't know which way to go. So he examines all the arguments and, and decides, you know, looks at all the scripture, and he decides he's going to go with the, uh, the, the predestination group. So he goes over there and knocks on the door and says, hey, I want to join your group. And they said, well, how did you get here? And he said, why? Listen, I examined all the evidence, and out of my own free will, I chose to come here. And they said, no, that's not how that works. You can't be a part of us. So they sent him over to the other group. So he goes over to the free will group, knocks on the door, says, hey, I want to be a part of the group. He said, well, how did you get here? He said, well, I didn't choose to be here. That group sent me over here. And they said, sent? You can't be a part of this group. And so um, then he became a Baptist. So uh, that's a joke. That's a bad joke. Um, But the Bible presents them side by side and feels no need to resolve the tension. When Paul says that those whom he foreknew he predestined, predestination is always unconditional and it's always initiated by God. It speaks to the divine purposes that God has as it relates to all created things. That's what he means. But I will tell you, if you do not have a high view of God's sovereignty, of his power and his authority to do all that he has decreed, you will find yourself becoming bitter. You'll find yourself unable to know his comfort. You'll find yourself very much struggling with resting in him. You, you'll find yourself in, a, in not being able to come to the place that Joseph comes when his brothers stand before him. And he says, you, as for you, as for you and all your free will and all your human responsibility, you meant evil against me. But God, in all his power and all his authority, in his sovereignty, meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive, should be saved as they are today. Here's what Joseph did not know, but we know now looking back, is that what God was doing in his life through that suffering, he was transforming Joseph into the likeness of the greater Joseph to come into the likeness of the Son of God that Joseph would not meet or know about on this side of his eternity. Because what God was doing in the life of his son, what was meant for evil against him, 
God was doing for good that many might be saved. Well, this is salvation um, in eternity past is what he's talking about. Now, in verse 29, what Paul's going to do is he's going to move into salvation present and future, if you will. God's sovereignty and salvation present and future. And it means this, that when he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be called. What that means is that God's grace... God's grace has come before you. It has been previous to your experience. That, that um, the, some old theologians, they would call it prevenient grace, or they might call it an effectual call. That what God has decreed in eternity past, we experience in a moment in time in history as he calls us and opens our eyes and and softens our heart and grants us the faith to see his son Jesus and embrace him and be saved. Thank you, Jesus is right. And that those whom he calls, he justifies. Now, let me be very clear about this, that salvation in eternity past, what God has done in eternity past, that is not your salvation. Your salvation, you meet with what God has done in eternity past in a present moment when you are called, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you hear the call, you hear the Spirit, um, you, 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 you may experience it as a, as a feeling or you may experience it as a, your eyes being open and you seeing a truth clearly for the first time that maybe you've heard and looked at for years, but now all of a sudden it makes sense and you go, that's the call. And now... Now you're given to respond and to be justified. And those that are justified are glorified. Some might say, well, Paul forgot sanctification in there. And I would say, no, sanctification is just, uh, glorification is sanctification fulfilled when we stand face to face. This calling is the love of God wooing us. It's the will of God drawing us. It's the desire of God pursuing us. It's the gift of God freeing us. It's the activity of God empowering us. And whatever else may be said, one thing is clear from this passage that everything that happens from beginning to end is owing to God. It is God's initiative. It is him pursuing us. It is like C.S. Lewis says, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia in um, uh, the, the, uh, the silver chair. Aslan, the Christ figure, says to the children, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. And we affirm that from what Paul says. Now you hear all these things and you think, well, what... How does this? How is this practical? And I would say this: it becomes extremely practical here. And I don't know any of your stories in this room this morning, but I would say this: I, I know people. I mean, I am a people, and I know enough to know that many of you in this room, you have tasted things that you were never meant to taste in a perfect world. 
that you have been pursued by evil and wickedness and you were never meant to be pursued by those things. You have felt stalked by the enemy of our God. But I can tell you from this passage, I don't know why that happened, but I can tell you from this passage that you have a God that has been stalking you. You have a God that has stalked you from eternity past. You know the verse, Psalm 23, at the end of it, after he says, you prepare a a table, a a banquet in the presence of my enemies. And then, then David, the writer of Psalm 23, says, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That is a great word, that word follow. The only time it's translated follow, that Hebrew word, The only time it's translated that way is in Psalm 23. You know what it's translated every other time? Hunted down, stalked, persecuted. You, surely, goodness and mercy will hunt me down the rest of my life. That's what Paul is saying about your God. Well, he has a lot to say. There's a lot we could say, but I'm running out of time. Let me show you th- let me show you something as hard as all that is for us to believe. What he says after this is the, is I think what the hardest things for us as believers to take in is the hardest thing for us to really believe. And so we've talked about God's sovereignty and suffering. We've talked about God's sovereignty and salvation. We are going to be talking about looking at real briefly God's sovereignty is power and authority in sustaining us our entire lives. And he does that by giving three evidences that God's completely for us. Look at this. He says, you know, after he says all these things, then in verse 31, he says what we're all thinking. What shall we say to these things? what What can be said? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this. Here's the first evidence that God's completely for you. In verses 31 and 32, he does not withhold anything from you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The next evidence that we have is that it tells us in 33 and 34, he will not allow anything, anything to condemn us. Everything that could ever be said about you was already said 2,000 years ago on Calvary. But then I want you to see the third thing he says. Here's the third evidence of God's love, and this may be the most difficult for us to believe, that he will not allow anything to separate you from his love. What shall separate us, verse 35, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing but nothing but nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You know what's interesting? In Scripture, every time the sovereignty of God is presented, is presented alongside the love of God. It's not something to be feared. It is something to be embraced. There's a story of a grandfather who goes to visit his granddaughter. And she's playing with a bunch of dolls. And so the grandfather gets down and says, well, which of these dolls is your favorite doll? She says, oh. So she goes over to this little chest and she opens it up and she pulls out the most ragged little doll you've ever seen. It's got an eye that's missing. It's filthy, dirty, and it's stuffings coming out of it. And <laughs> Grandfather says, well, why is that your favorite doll? And she says, because if I didn't love this doll, nobody would. You were created to be loved by God in a way that no one else can love you. You were created with a vacuum in your soul that can only be filled by the love of God. And what Paul says is nothing will separate you from it. There are some implications of this. One is that God's love cannot be gauged by what happens to us. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love. You know what the evidence of God's love is? It's the cross. It's not the things that happen to us. It is the things that his son endured on our behalf. That's the evidence of God's love for us. And what that means is that your obedience, whether it is your perfect obedience or your filthy disobedience, cannot in any way affect God's love for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You know, we're going to take communion now. And what we remember in communion is this very thing, is the love of God. The evidence of the love of God is the cross. In fact, John will say it this way in his letter to the churches. He says this, God is love. And in this, in this, the love of God was manifested among us. It was made visible among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he says, in this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is this great old theological word that means this. It's got two sides. One is that he became the atoning sacrifice. He, all of your sin was laid upon him. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. Your sin, my sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. And propitiation also means one other thing, two sides of the coin. Not only did he take your sin, did he become your sin, he also became the object of God's 
infinite and eternal wrath so that you never have to endure his wrath. There is no condemnation and there is no separation from those that are in Christ. He was condemned so you could be loved. He drank the cup of wrath so that you can drink the cup of grace. That's what we drink this morning. The, we remember the body and the blood of Christ, that God became man and dwelt among us and died for our sins, and that by his shed blood, sins are covered and forgiven. And so if the folks that are going to help us serve communion, if they would come, we will um, distribute the elements. And then what we'll do is we'll wait until we've all been served, and then we'll eat and drink together in remembrance of our Lord.